How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sci-Fi Podcast, episode 233. Hey, Zeke. Yeah. Did you nab ticks to Tay-Tay this week? Nab ticks to Tay-Tay? No, I did not, but I did uh, hear they hurt. I should have, because then I could have resold them at 3000 a ticket. <laughs> Despite the fact that they're trying to make it that you can only put them 10% up their own value. I love that. That makes no sense. They're trying to regulate it. I get no. it. I get it. I guess. At the end of the day, I mean, it's a it's a seller's market, isn't it? Really. It's annoying. Like I don't like the the pre-sales or the, the, the honestly, it, we should just go back to the old days. Just line up. Line up. I was thinking that cuz I so I participated in this Taylor Swift pre-sale, pre-ticket mm-hmm. sale thing. Actually, I I did get two tickets. Yeah. Not for myself. I was my sister was she wrote up an entire slideshow. To on for all of her friends, including myself, on how to, you know, do the code, the pre-sale code, and and all of her passwords for Ticket Tech and stuff. So I could have, you know, could have taken the credit card yeah. and ran away. Was now I'm going to be a good brother. And uh, I after like eight and a half hours of being in the queue, I I managed to get two VIP tickets for her. So I'm very proud of myself. So it's a VIP ticket. I have no idea. And this is the problem. I, I feel... I don't think she cared about this. I think she was just... Like the ex- cost? Well, not even the cost. It was very expensive. It was tied to her account directly. So, like, I didn't pay for it or anything. Yeah. But I... And I'm sure she did not care about this at all. I think she was just more than happy that I got tickets for her because she was at Prac today. But I couldn't tell because there were different VIP packages. And I could not for the life of me tell what was what because there were just, like, Taylor Swift songs and references. I'm like, what's the difference between... What's the difference between a love story and Shake It Off? Exactly. Like, those were the names of the VIP packages. <laughs> I'm like, what <laughs> Shake It Off. Means? Like, shake the money out of your wallet. Exactly, yeah. It's love so Story, where well, you're going to have to love it because you're spending so much. what <laughs> <laughs> it's all cold. Oh, I love it. Well, I was watching a film, and I'll, I'm going to talk about this film in a minute, Zeke. Yeah. A little tease. But I had the... Um, it's not Miss Americana. No, it's not. It's not. It would have been great. It would have been in, in, in tune with it. But I had the countdown, like the lounge thing on Ticketek behind. Mm-hmm. And I only noticed that I'd actually gotten through to purchase tickets with about four minutes left on the clock. And I was heart palpitations. Because I was like, if I like miss out now, <laughs> she might kill me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I made it just in time. Thank, I, I thank honestly think that there is an argument to bring back at least a percentage to ticket booth sales. Because, mm. like, I didn't look the Coldplay one. I sit there, I shake my heads. I'm like, ah, whatever. But the grand final. Thing. Well, the grand final, I was a bit, bit of a disappointed with because it's like that's the one thing you kind of wanted to do. I was lucky earlier in that COVID year. I did get to go see the Dreamtime game, which oh, was awesome. Not quite as popular as the yeah that was in yeah. Perth, and that was really cool. And that was like fifty nine thousand in the in, in Optus. Yeah, so, wow. um, it is interesting. I'm I'm glad that the bands and people I generally like, I don't have to mm. deal with these anxiety. I made inducing. I made that joke today. Like the things I'm into don't have. 4 million people trying yeah. to log in at once. Like, I bought Cat Empire tickets three weeks out from the show <laughs> and was still... It was still yeah. full, but it was like, yeah, there was just no stress on getting yeah. it straight away. And, the, and then the urgency wasn't quite All the craft there. beer festivals, I get in early because I know they're not going to sell out, but mm. the tickets do exponentially increase from, rele- like, their releases. Right. So getting in early 
you actually save a lot more money. Yeah, but yeah. it's not. That, like, I think that's a great system. Yeah, it sort of rewards you for being an early bird, but not that it want to punish you for being late. But I, it reminds me of the disconnected screening where like half the tickets sold the day of the premiere. Yes, and it was just mildly annoying to me because I was like. You're, you're trying. You're trying to arrange all those numbers. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad all those people went, but I, I understand that system completely. Absolutely. Like the later you leave it, the more you might have to cough up. It's as simple as that. Now, Zeke, we might be, you know, going on a couple of extra tangents today because we are recording this episode very early. Yes. Um, we're just moving around the world of our show, much like mm. the main character from the film that we're covering this oh, week. Very good. Very good, Zeke. Jake, do you have any fun trivia facts from Raiders of the Lost Ark? I do. I was quite surprised re-watching this film. I haven't seen it in so long. So it was such a, a great, mm-hmm. fun time to rewatch this film. But the thing that struck me was that so many of the set pieces are surrounded around animals and creatures and specifically dangerous creatures. Uh, you got like the the bunch of tarantulas that are on... Uh, Indy and Alfred Molina. <laughs> we got to talk about him at the start of the film. Those are real um, tarantulas. And obviously the snake pit mm-hmm. is uh, many, many, many snakes, pythons. Not just uh, snakes. Cobras. Legless lizards. Yes, legless lizards that, that kind of filled in the slot for a lot of the uh, what was meant to be 7,000 snakes mm. on that set, which is absolutely mind-blowing. So I that's something I noticed while watching. I was like, this is real <laughs> these are a lot of real creatures in the film these aren't puppets no um i imagine the vast majority of them were not puppets or if they were i didn't notice them so that didn't surprise me at all to read they went to that extent to get the real creature and the real the real deal on set yeah a little actors. i mean a little side note of that mm. trivia fact the part in which the cobra moves to an arching position in indy's face mm. Um, obviously there was plexiglass between it, but in the right. original theatrical cut, the lens was caught in the, the reflection was oh, caught. Oh, that's funny. Interesting. So we might not see that version, but the original cinematic version was, uh, yeah, you could see the, uh, the reflection. There is a reflection in, this is very specific, but it always bugged me. The seventh episode of Better Call Saul, the first season, right at the end, there's this huge, like, 80 second take where the camera's slowly pushing on Jimmy's face and he's resting against like a glass like plane and you can see the entire camera crew in the reflection just the entire shot and I think they've edited it since like if you watch it on streaming now you can't see it but that bothered me I was like that's a giant window guys you could <laughs> yeah what are you doing <laughs> what are you doing no I'm, I'm being mean it's all, it's all well, very hard business filmmaking sometimes timetables make productions fast and loose and that leads mm. me to my trivia fact yes Steven Spielberg coming into this film never met a deadline with his film shoots obviously Jaws ran heavily over time right. we've actually covered most of these on the show we've covered quite a few of these films on the show um, Close Encounters yes. also went over the budget and over time and um even 1941, which doesn't get talked a lot about with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Um, because it was his big flop. Right. Um, hey, The Fablemans. I'm pretty sure that was a flop too. Yeah. But critically go. and commercially, oh, I see. which sort of begged the question, was this guy all that? Um, because he had made two blockbuster films that made a lot of money, but yep. cost a lot more money and cost a lot more time, which meant... He was quite a risk at this point, mm. so he made it his explicit mission 
to make this film finish ahead of time, in which it finished its planned 90 shoot day 11 days early. Which leads to a lot of fun, quirky aspects of the film upon rewatches you can kind of see yeah the fast and loose nature of it there's one i mean we're of course going to talk there's one example of like how do you cut down on a shoot date (laughs) especially when the whole crew's sick there's a brilliant 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 example of that in this film we'll of course get to later but yeah i'm excited to talk about raiders of the lost ark not indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark Mm. although i feel like kind of like episode four I guess it was like kind of sort of rewritten later in the future. Yes. But that's like the title on the poster, but not the title elsewhere. It's interesting that both Lucas and Spielberg have a habit of doing that, changing their titles slightly over time. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, this is the part we normally watch, uh, talk about what we've covered in the last (laughs) week. What have you covered in the last 48 hours, (laughs) Jack? Exactly. Well, there was that one film I mentioned. That uh, I had to pause frantically to buy Tay Tay Tix. Uh, that film was Run Rabbit Run, which okay. uh, came to Netflix very recently. We talked about it in the last episode. It stars uh, Shiv Roy, Sarah Snook. And uh, if this film does anything, it confirms that she would have been a terrible mother after all. <laughs> the character, I should clarify. Um, so, yeah, this is an Australian film. Screen Australia produced it. And. I was watching it the whole time feeling like this just feels like the spiritual successor to the Babadook. And I'm not the only one saying this, but it sort of has that contemporary sort of gothic Victorian tone. And when I say Victorian, I'm talking about, you know, like South Australian Mm -hmm. sort of the visuals there. Um, It's all very glum looking, muddy, cold, wet environments, which I love when Australian films have the balls to do that because so many Australian films feel like tourist commercials. Look how beautiful our beaches look, how bright mm. and sunshine and everything. I love when it, it kind of pulled a descendants like that film did with Hawaii and making Hawaii kind of look ugly and, and glum. And they kind of did the same here, which I got to applaud them because that would have been hard to shoot with the schedule of like finding the windiest, coldest days to shoot uh, to do all that. So I applaud the film for that purpose. But Again, more parallels to the Bubba Duke. You know, you got Sarah Snook, who's essentially playing the S.E. Davis role as like, the frustrated mother. Mm-hmm. There's these themes of of grief resurfacing, uh, it, or through a spiritual means as well. There's a lot of that stuff going on, and the film was even written by Hannah Kent, which I've scoured through Google. I cannot confirm that she is Jennifer Kent's sister, but I'm very convinced that she is. <laughs> They're very very similar films. However, I walked away pretty disappointed with the film overall. I thought, like, narratively, it's very simplistic. The mystery aspect, I guess the initial driving question of, like, what's going on? Um, Why is her daughter behaving very strangely? How does this all tie to her dark, secret family past? I'm not usually the kind of guy to, like, predict these things. Or, like, I saw her coming a mile away. But it was pretty clear from the very beginning. It left you feeling quite flat. It took me like 20 minutes to be like, oh, okay, this is this and this character is this and this is what's happening. Now, there are more interesting revelations later in the film. I was like, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting that aspect. And it kind of threw me off guard because I spent the majority of the film's runtime being like, well, I know what the secret is or what the mystery is and now I'm just waiting for Sarah Snook's character arc to be fulfilled. And for her to overcome her grief. Mm. Like, I'm just waiting for that to happen. 
and the film itself isn't really gripping me. Like I said, there are some interesting revelations and some moments of uncomfortable violence towards the end of the film that was like intriguing, but the the gap between the start and then those moments happening was so big. I spent the majority of the film just being like, okay, not very engaged. Yeah, felt like I've seen this before, especially in the Australian psychological horror genre. Kind yeah. of the the um. Definitely what Screen Australia seems to focus the most on. Mm. If it's not a, a a dry comedy, it's that or a psychological horror. They seem to horror seems to be a big subsection of Screen Australia films. Well, um, I wish they would focus even more on it because you do get a lot of hits like Babadook, and yeah. even then that was a hit internationally, not even here necessarily. Um, but for here, it just kind of felt very samey. Yeah. So. Yeah, I do. I do wish we would get more variety of Australian films. Oh, it's nice getting at least the uh, contemporary opinion on it and getting a, yeah. a talk about. It. It's obviously good to see some of the succession alumni already uh, getting back into the doing other things. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I would love to see her in other roles, and she's she's great in this film. It's interesting to see her do something different. She's a lot more subdued and and frustrated and and wordless of course mm-hmm. she has many many words to say in succession so you know if you want to counter those two performances um but uh, i mean frankly it was probably the only reason i even gravitated toward watching this film at all and i was like okay she's great but the material around her yeah it's yeah. Un- it's unfortunate i wanted to really enjoy it and i just i found it very flat and unengaging for a good chunk of it so that's run, rabbit, run. Well, I can't say I've caught anything in the last 48 hours, <laughs> apart from the film of the week. Um, it has mm. been a crazy end to the term. I can imagine. Yeah. Hopefully I get to watch a couple of things on planes and have moments of downtime. Yeah, so I'm, so tell the audience where you're going. I'm going to Darwin oh, for a wedding, good. and then I'm going to Adelaide and then going to Melbourne. Excellent. But Bit of a trip. Yeah, apparently Litchfield National Park is gorgeous. And I actually will be bringing a camera, which will be nice. Oh, um, excellent. Photography? Yeah. I, I, You know what? I've been getting really into photography recently. Mm. I don't know what it is. It's just something about... It's something that didn't click when I was younger. I always <laughs> really Clicked. liked film. Very good. Uh, Clever. Yeah. Like, when we did it in high school, I just didn't care for it. Whereas sure. now I'm like, got this sudden urge to really get into photography. Uh, I think... Um, Obviously, recently I acquired another G7 camera, which is for like the commercial sort of the the mm. corporate video work that I'm trying to get off the ground. Um, so yeah, if you need any corporate work, go to <laughs> Mister Media Creative. Hit me up. Um, it's a career shout out right there. Yeah, career shout out. Because um, I really want to get that going. I mean, yeah. I think now being in that position where you got a job and you're able to do that, where it's like if it doesn't go great it's not the right. end of the world exactly yeah you got something um, to fall back on or nice. your, your main job i suppose yeah um which is still related which yeah. is always helpful yeah and i i think you know i used to always take a camera like a dslr camera on trips because you never know something might just jump out at you mm. and make you want to like film something and um yeah, I feel, I'm looking forward to Darwin. We're not there for very long, but I'm looking forward to seeing such the, the dynamic difference between mm. here and there. And it's going to be like 30 degrees, which here it's so cold. And yeah, I was going to say, you're gonna, are you yeah. going to enjoy that? or I don't know. Much? We'll find yeah. out. We'll find out. I'm going from that to Adelaide, so it's 
both polars, but yeah. um, well, hopefully been... you don't get sick. No, hopefully. Um, it's been so long since we've had a pre-record. Yeah, yeah, it does. I'm trying to think of the last time. I mean, we still... It's not like we filmed this out of order. No. So I think that helped. I mean, the last time we filmed anything out of order was like pre-COVID. Yeah, so it's not like a pre-pre-record. Yeah. Um, yeah, COVID, man. That was crazy when we <laughs> that did that was a, six episode that was block. A bang. We were both completely here the whole time. We probably could have redone those because <laughs> 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 we didn't go anywhere. Uh, that was fun because we had guests for all of those. True. We did make a really yeah, good Zach and, and Perry and Stephen, they all came on yeah, to do wow. episodes. Yeah, we got so lucky to have all those like in the slots as COVID became a thing. So Very true. That yeah. is very true. Well... Um, mm-hmm. Have you got anything else to add before we jump into the second half of the show? I do, actually. Ooh! I thought this would be fun. Now, okay. I mentioned to you off the show last week, or last week in quotations, for the audience. It was last yeah. week. It was last week. Um, that I wanted to do another round of IMDb trivia. I wanted to just go for the show and find some interesting facts about things and, and add them, because we've only got like seven trivia facts on yes. our IMDb page. And what I did was went through all of the directors we've covered throughout okay. the film. So, you know, 233 episodes now. Um, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head of how many directors in total. Yep. But I've written them all down. I've separated all the ones that we've covered at least two of their films. So in terms of directors who we've covered multiple times on the show. Okay. And I've also wrote a list of directors we've only covered once that my initial reaction was, wow, we've only done that. We've only done one Director film once. of theirs. Like, wow, interesting. So I thought it would be a fun little guessing game, Zeke. Okay. For you, and it's actually you will find out why momentarily. It's actually a very special time to do this, considering the film we're doing this week and the director. Um, I want to ask you right off the bat, Zeke, who do you think is the director we've covered the most in the show? Dun dun um, dun. Yeah, Jeopardy. Is it, <laughs> Jeopardy? Um... <clears throat> There's a few obvious answers in here. I was going to say Wes Anderson, mm. but I don't know if that's correct because he's we've done Budapest. We actually have not done we've Budapest. Done, oh, my God, this is 200 episodes. I so know. Hard. Fantastic Mr. Fox, I know we've done. Yes. Um, Bottle Rocket, yes. obviously. Um, I've got have we done Isle of Dogs? No. No. We did The French Dispatch. Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom, you're right. So, so we've done four. four Wes Anderson films. Uh, no, he would he, be... we have done two other directors. We've done more films than two other directors. Is It It would have to be Steven Spielberg as one. As of today, Steven Spielberg is our number one. Raiders of the Lost Ark will be the sixth film of his we've covered on the show. Alongside... I'm trying to think of the... F- yeah, who the second would be. Is it... I was Coen surprised Brothers? by this answer. No, it's not. We've done three of the Coen Brothers films. Okay. Who is it? It is Richard Linklater. Your favourite. Ah, oh, well, that makes... <laughs> yeah, because did three... Link- that, yeah. that tracks. We did the Before Trilogy. And then School of Rock. School of Rock and Boyhood. And Boyhood, yeah. Okay. So, at the moment, the top three up here, of course, Wes Anderson is tied with another director. We can get into that person yep. in a moment. Steven Spielberg with six films... Linklater with five films and Anderson with four films. Who do you think is the other director we've covered four times on the show? Um, is it 
Is it Scorsese? It is indeed Scorsese. Mm, go on. <laughs> there you go. Can you remember the four films we've done of his? Goodfellas. No. Tax- no, we haven't we have done. Not. No, we've done Taxi Driver, Raging yes. Bull. No, we have not done Raging Bull. <laughs> I love some of these weird selections. Okay, hang on. We've done Last Waltz. Yes. Taxi Driver. Yes. Think more. Irishman. Yes, more recently. Yep. And did we do Wolf of Wall Street? No, we didn't. It's a very oh, early departed. one. No. No. You're going to kick yourself when you remember this. This is a very, very early episode. We did this with Jesse Newell. He helped us cover this fourth film. I, I'm i like genuinely blanking because... All I can think about with Jesse mm. is we did Marie Antoinette. Yes. And we did Dogtooth yes. together. We did all I can think of is the weird films we did. I with can't Jesse. believe we did Dogtooth but not like <laughs> Raging Bull or Goodfellas. <laughs> How have we not done Raging Bull? That feels like a miss to me. Um The film we did with Jesse was The King of Comedy. <laughs> Because of Joker. <laughs> yes. Oh. I was going to say that. I was like, that's too obvious. The Joker. Yeah. We did it leading into Joker. Yeah. That that was, that was is painful. I, it's I so hard to remember now. We've done plenty of episodes. <laughs> All right. So, so that's a fun game. Wait for the uh, Cinema Sideshow board game that'll come out of it. <laughs> the Monopoly but. board game. All right. Well, let, let's do a quick round. There's a bunch of directors we've covered three times. Okay. Do you want to have just a, a shoot in the dark for a bunch of them? I I kind of want to say... I, I was going to say... Oh, Sophia Coppola. Yes. Oof, We've done yes. three times. Um, I think at one point she was the director we covered was, the most. She was. She was. Way back when. Um, I thought Catherine Bigelow, but I don't know if that's correct because we did Hurt, Hurt Locker and Point Break. Yes. So, we, so we, two. We've covered her twice. Okay. But you were correct. Not three times. Um... I feel like it's going to be... We've done Sydney Lumet twice. Yes. Yes, you're correct. Angry Men and... I'm trying to find his name. Dog Day Afternoon. Yes, yes. Those are the two. Um, so, I'm doing okay. You're doing uh, pretty well for the twos. <laughs> oh, Francis Ford. Uh, two, yes. I thought he'd be doing for three. No, because um, that would be uh, Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Oh, uh, Kubrick. Uh, two. What?! This is the crazy. Shining in 2001. Um, oh, my God. Oh, Ridley Scott. Uh, okay, this is interesting. Ridley Scott, we've only covered once. That's why. And Tony Scott. Both of them we've only <laughs> covered once. Just as much that. <laughs> no one would have saw they, that. They get of. equal fame on this show, Zeke. Equal fame. Because um, <laughs> we, did, we did Blade Runner and Top Gun, respectively. And we've, we've covered the... Um, Safties, the twice. two. Yes, you're right. Safties and then we've also covered uh, who's the guys who just won the Oscar. The oh, brothers. the Daniels. The we've Daniels only covered twice. once. We never did a. Uh, we did Swiss, Swiss Army. Army. No, we didn't. What? No. I swear we did Swiss Army Man. Uh, I, I feel like I restrained myself from suggesting that film because that feels like too much of a Jake film. Like I've heard too greedy suggesting that we we should do Swiss Army Man. <laughs> Darabont, we've only done once. Um, I don't think that's no, true. No, there's two. Darab- we, don't, yeah. we did Green Mile. Shawshank and Green Mile. You were correct. Two. We did two. two. Um, oh, my God. 
Oh, Christopher Nolan three times. You are correct. Inception, Tenet, and Memento. Although that may change in a few weeks. Yes. You might get another nod. Oh, have we done... We've done Francis Ha, Little Women. So have we done three from Greta Gerwig? We've no, only done one from Greta Gerwig. We don't do Little Women? So we ne- we never did Little Women. We did Francis Ha, though. Well, Francis Ha was actually directed by Noah Baumbach. Oh, it was a Noah Baumbach. And so we, we've done him we, three times. So we... Marriage Story. So we, we talked White about... White noise. We talked... <laughs> it's back. We talked about Francis Ha in the Ladybird Greta Gerwig Director's Corner with Perry. So that's way back when. So technically, that's the one we get for Greta Gerwig. Noah Baumbach gets Marriage Story and White Noise. So that's two as well. So Francis Ha was never a, a main film oh, we covered. I feel like... Man... This is like it's crazy, blown, isn't blown it? My mind. <laughs> You're getting all sorts of IMDb trivia oh, facts Oh, Tarantino, right now. Tarantino, three times. three times. You are correct. Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, that's wild. You've gotten quite a lot of these. Do you want me to rattle off some of the rest? Do Soderbergh twice. Uh, Soderbergh, we've only done one time with Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven. Eleven. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, yeah, go for it. And Aronofsky, I know we've only done once. Twice. No, you were at once. 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 I was surprised by that too. With yeah. the wrestler very recently. Uh, so one of some of the ones we missed. You did mention the Coens earlier, so we did three of their oh. films. Mm-hmm. Alexander Payne. We've done uh, Sideways. Twice. You're and right. Descendants. No, Nebraska. Nebraska. Mm. Wow. But some of these are directors' corners. So that's why we get muddled because we yeah. talk about a bunch of their films in one episode. I mean, that's why we get a lot of this uh, <laughs> overlap. <laughs> overlap. Exactly. Um, so that's a really good... You've you've nailed quite a lot of these. I'm impressed. So I will uh, rattle off some of the rest. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, we've covered three times. For... Pinocchio, <laughs> Pinocchio, Shape of Water. No, uh, no, 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 no. Pinocchio, Nightmare Alley, and Pan's Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Yeah. I think Shape of Water was one of those like slightly too early films. We, we didn't start the show until just yeah. after it came out, I think. Uh, let's see. So you did mention Sofia Coppola earlier, three... Uh, Rob White, uh, Rob Wright, Reiner. Oh my god, I can't speak. Do you remember how many films we did of Rob Reiner? Princess Bride, mm-hmm. When Harry Met Sally. Yep. And not that long ago, we did this one from I think nineteen ninety. I'm blanking. It was Misery. Oh, I have Misery. I really. <laughs> <laughs> forget that's Rob Reiner yeah I know oh it's so good so yeah that, those are the three from Rob Reiner uh, we've only got two excuse me two directors left who have, we've covered three times yep Jordan Peele which includes his entire filmography uh, and Paul Thomas Anderson oh PTA yeah which I was surprised because yeah Punch Drunk Love Licorice Pizza and There Will Be Blood I'm like yeah I guess we did cover him that many times very interesting uh, some of the other directors that we've only covered twice throughout the show, you you got quite a lot of them. Uh, we missed out on, I think, Alfred Hitchcock, we didn't mention. So, Rear Window and North by Northwest. That's shocking we've only done those two. Yeah, that, 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 that blows me away. Yeah. Uh, Orson Welles. Because we covered The Other Side of the Wind. Very oh. early in the show. So, that's why we technically nabbed him twice. Uh, George Lucas who, of course, we're going to be talking about in just a moment, Star Wars and American Graffiti. Uh, let's see. Bon Joon-ho and Thomas Vintenberg, respectively. 
for a parasite, memories of murder, and then the hunt, and of course another round. Yes, can't what go wrong. <laughs> what a life! Uh, Jane Campion and Jennifer Kent, respectively. So the power of the dog and the piano versus the Babadook and the Nightingale. Um, after the film I just watched with Sarah Snook, it feels like I just watched the Babadook <laughs> again. Um, you mentioned Catherine Bigelow, good pull. Uh, Peter Weir for Picnic and Handy Rock and Gallipoli. Mm. So there's a two right there. Uh, Denis Villeneuve for Dune and Blade Runner 2047. David Fincher for Fight Club and Mank. Ryan Johnson for both Knives Out and Glass Onion. And yeah, you mentioned most of these. Victor Fleming for The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. Edgar Wright for Last Night in Soho and Shaun of the Dead. Sean Baker for The Florida Project and Red Rocket. Damien Chazelle for Whiplash and Babylon. Oof. This is interesting. John Carney, Sing Street and Once, but No Begin Again. One day. One day. We'll have to fix that. Uh, (laughs) Underrated. John Watts for Spider-Man, Far From Home and No Way Home. (laughs) Olivia Wilde for Booksmart and Don't Worry Darling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Robert Eggers I was surprised by this because Ari Aster we've only done once so Robert Eggers for The Lighthouse and The Witch respectively and finally the last two Anthony and Joe Russo hey for Avengers Endgame and welcome to Collingwood yeah that's a throwback (laughs) episode 12 (laughs) episode oh my god that's amazing and finally John Carpenter for Halloween and The Thing respectively there you go We've covered a lot. We have. There's a bunch in here we've only done once, but I, I feel like we've just exhausted. Yes. We've, we threw a lot of names at the audiences there. Yeah. Stay tuned for the Cinema Sideshow board game coming to you <laughs> by season 18. Oh, there you go. Only more to come. I yeah. love it. Check out our Etsy or something. <laughs> it's going to be like little merch. key rings with all the directors on there. and You know people would buy it. You know you want the merch. I know, I know. Our 20 lives. I mean, that's what a lot of the Taylor Swift VIP stuff was, was just merch attached to the tickets. It's probably where a lot of that money comes from. VIP merch. We should do VIP tickets for the Cinema Sideshow live show. I said, you know, Skin and Blister premiere. We've already got most of our audience (laughs) at that premiere. (laughs) An entire audience in one room. Let's do it. Steven will be like the person who hosts the Q&A, but also just asks all the questions. He won't let anyone in the audience ask any questions. No. Uh, he, he messaged me the other day. He was complimenting our last podcast. That's very kind. Yeah, for Eternal Sunshine. Well, thank, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. We appreciate your massive essay you wrote on the ending of Succession. Oh, yes. The Fate of Never the Never forget. There's a man who really likes that show. <laughs> I don't blame him. I, I don't, don't blame, blame him. I remember when the show was about to end, he said... I, Jake, I need to find a new personality now. That's <laughs> yeah. right, so, yeah, Stephen. pretty accurate. You, you don't have to like Hamilton when you're with us. <laughs> but I like Hamilton, Greg. <laughs> well, or it's Tom, time. It says Tom. <laughs> <laughs> time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? Let's look in the show, Zeke. We're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. Dr. Jones, you're a man of many talents. <laughs> It is something that man was not meant to disturb. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. 
Archaeology professor Indiana Jones ventures to seize a biblical artifact called the Ark of the Covenant. While doing so, he's pulled up into a fight against Rene and a troop of Nazis. Ah, oh, Paul Freeman. How could you? Yeah. So mean. Blasphemy. <laughs> so, Zeke, the love child of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Yeah. They have both have joint custody of this film. Oh, there you go. No. Do they still? Um, With the new I one think, about to come out. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Or out? It's actually out right now. I think. Look at the yeah. end of the at the end of the day, Jake. If Al Pacino can have a baby at eighty-two, <laughs> Steven Spielberg <laughs> and George Lucas can give birth to another Indiana Jones film. Oh, that is true. That um, is true. yeah. Look, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the story behind it. I think the context behind this film is is one of the things that is is truly remarkable about mm. it. I mean, a lot of the information, the understanding I have of it are, th- are things from that amazing Spielberg biographical documentary that right, yeah. uh, I watched just before we, we covered the Fablemans on the show. And um, I do find it quite interesting. You know, these are two directors you have at the time. George Lucas is rolling in money, mm. like an un- an inconceivable amount of money following his booming success, which, you know, gianted, dwarfed, basically, mm. uh, Jaws and, and Close Encounters revenue streams mm. um, with Star Wars. And because he just liked his buddy Steven so much, he just <laughs> threw him <laughs> threw him a bunch of money and got the rest of it from a studio that, that, that bit back and then turned it into another incredibly profitable experience for George Lucas. Mm. Say what you will about George Lucas, but the man was a businessman and he got a lot of money from the 80s. It's funny because I was talking to my boss the other day about this. And for those who don't know, my boss, he's he's actually quite familiar with Lucasfilm and that he worked on the Indiana Jones series that they did afterwards. So he was telling me all about like the ranch and everything and like just some of the conversations he had with them. Um, but we just got talking until, like, yeah, like, George Lucas has the reputation he does now from, like, sacred fans of Star Wars. But in terms of, like, a pioneer in terms of the business side of movie making, but, but then, like, the creative side of filmmaking in terms of the VFX and sound stuff that he originated, essentially, mm-hmm. just just insane. He changed well, everything. To be fair, I, I think we had a lot of high praise for him when we were talking about American Graffiti. And, oh, of course. And, and I think, like you said, his position by a lot of people are those of the the sacred they 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 see the mm. the ark of covenant ark of the covenant in star wars <laughs> and they and, think it's theirs and they think it's theirs <laughs> and it's really interesting because this is a man that has this massive success that a lot of people said that wasn't going to be a success with star wars he gets this boatload of money one of his few people that actually advocated for the film mm. and actually supported him through it was Steven. Yeah. And at the time, Steven's coming off the back of 
commercial and critical flop in 1941. Mm. And like I said, two successful critically films and obviously commercial films, but he was over a hundred days over with Jaws, weeks over with Close Encounters and wildly over budget for both. From a studio executive point of view, people were getting close to not touching him because right, a bit of a flight risk in that. Well, way. he kind of had the the Nolan effect. I mean, Nolan went big or went home, and he's lucky. He mm. he's hit. So we're well, not lucky. He's good. Yeah, but he's hit every time until we got to Tenant, and that's the first time we've stuck our hands and gone. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and we're still going to go watch Oppenheimer. Well, but what I think we... that's the big key to Nolan is like Tenant was like, who cares? Like, we watched the trailer for Oppenheimer, we're like, let's go. Like, we're just as excited as anything to see that film. So, yeah. the fact that I don't think it really hit his reputation at all. Because at that point, he has a reputation. You know, mm-hmm. he's not... This is not... He's had an amazing first film, and the second film has been like, a, yeah, and then we're starting to ask, oh, was that a flash in the pan, or yes, no, you know? Yeah. Like, that's the big difference there, I guess. You know, I mean... It's sort of like, uh, you know, if we take it to an even more micro, and this is not to smear anything, but, you know, like, you take Hounds of Love, everyone loved Hounds of Love, mm. and then the second Ben Young project didn't hit as well. This is it the, the big Netflix thing? Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we sort of go, okay, well, what's next? Mm. Like, and, and it'll be interesting to see how that works, but... It's a vicious town. You have to hit over and over and over again. So it blows me away that like he does Jaws and Close Encounters, um, specifically Jaws, because you're right, the commercial success of that from the birth of the blockbuster, mm-hmm. that, that he would struggle at all. And the yeah. fact that they both struggled to get this film made. Yeah, well, it's hedging. They hedged their bets into this film, like yeah. I said. they And they rushed production because, well, they moved at a frantic pace yeah. and and... Basically, Lucas at that point, who had such a, you know, and had a lot of, one of the other things people say is how char- like charismatic and likable he was. I mm. mean, he pulled some of the best minds onto this film. He yeah. got them onto that set, not Steven. Mm. And that's really interesting because then you've got all of these amazing people working on this film, working at the, the best, working at it at the quickest and most frenetic pace. Mm. And... It, there was no time to stop you know they got through the, they literally powered through sickness you know dysentery and mm. um, it's interesting we see this film that is as phonetic as it's process making which is crazy <laughs> well I think that's sort of you know the chicken and the egg sort of like that probably reinforces the pace of the film yeah. is the pace that it was made at you got Harrison Ford at his peak in terms of performative sure, yeah. uh, buy-in and charisma effort. as well and yeah i mean he's doing his own stunts he's gone full tom cruise in this film <laughs> bruising ribs getting dysentery still i forgot how through. beat up he gets throughout this film and he did I it all i love it i love it like the man the man was clearly at this point where he went after star wars he went i do not want this is the if i do because that's the other thing mm. at this point you know, Empire is about to come out at the same, like around the same time. Mm. I think you know it's very close. I think it was about a year's difference at the end. So eighty and then eighty one. This is this was him solidifying himself as the Hollywood stud of right. that time. Like you know, fifteen years before it, it's Steve McQueen, and now it's his turn. You know, mm. like and. This was a guy, what, five years before as a carpenter? Like, <laughs> we, can we talk about the upward trajectory of Harrison Ford's career in five years? He goes from, like, working with wood to, like, 
That's to, awesome. to other things. <laughs> Working with wood. Uh, to becoming Indiana Jones. To becoming there you Indiana go. Well, Jones. I think part of that is the power of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg in terms of them casting him and in terms of just, frankly, how gigantic the movies were that put Harrison Ford on the map because he could have been great and charismatic in all these films, but if they all flopped, then yeah. where's the star power? And he's hilarious. He's still as dry and grumpy in, like... <laughs> In the early 80s, it makes you wonder, like, how he... Like, there must have been a form of endearment with him because I always like seeing, like, how much... I mean, he got as involved when he got Mm. cast as Indiana Jones. He's there rewriting lines. He's saying that, like, he's working with George and Stephen, basically being like, no, no, we should do it this way. He's putting his own inflections on and performance aspects into it. Like... He just did not care about like the the traditional system. Maybe it's his age, but it, he never cared about doing it anything other than his yeah. way. Well, I think I think that reflects just how tightly knit this group of friends were. Yeah. And I think, and you read all these stories of like, you know, how they were just chatting. Him and George were chatting, and they came up with the idea for this film. And then I think uh, Stephen was chatting with with Harrison's wife, and then that's how E. T. was born. You know, in terms of the the script writing stage and. Like, these are just all close friends making banger after banger after banger together It's mm. and changing the industry. It's absolutely... It's yeah. awesome. And I'm I'm kind of a little shocked that we haven't had just, like, the straight um, retelling, you know, uh, biopic drama of this group making these films together. Like, yeah. uh, the, the Fablemans, but, like, with all of them, you know, with, the, with them and lucas and and coppola and 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 scorsese and everyone like you said like the like we're just getting the straight spielberg biopic like Mm. or or even a lucas biopic or or it could be one of them laurel and hardy's the spielberg and lucas or you could even call it like i don't know like the birth of the blockbuster and then you Mm. just follow like that 10 year period where you've got you know and they're mentored by Francis Ford Coppola who goes mm. on to make Apocalypse Now in this period just yeah. after doing The Godfather you know it's like the 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 the, the biome of of cinema mm. and it's interesting cuz now we're living in the time where we're seeing you know these guys who are now all very senior they're all in, quite old but they're still around yeah. you know whereas like the artifacts of the 40s have been, you know, we a couple of weeks ago we're doing the countdown through the decades and we're talking about Casablanca and mm. how much of a knock-on effect that has and and how a year later then Orson Welles comes out with Citizen Kane and they were the ones that then these men watched growing up. And yeah. They've, they've echoed it, you know. No, I mean, and that's a great segue to the actual direct inspirations which were those earlier, like early 20th century serials that George Lucas loved. And I think that's sort of... Stems me to my main walk away from from Raiders of the Lost Ark, having seen it for the first time in so long, and and since seeing that film, watching all the other Spielberg classics like Jaws for the first time, Close Encounters for the first time, maybe not E.T. for the first time, but certainly rewatching E.T. and even more recently The Fablemans, mm-hmm. all films that feel very personal to Spielberg in terms of their thematic messaging and what they say about family and parents and divorce and then mystery and intrigue and obsession that we see in Close Encounters and all mm. of these things that I scarcely see any of that in Indiana Jones. It's and I, just fun. It's just fun. And I think having not watched the others, I would love to watch the rest of them before, you know, Dial of Destiny. 
so you know we're covering this one now and i'm assuming by you know the next episode we do we're gonna have seen the whole mm-hmm. rest of the series again i kind of see where you come from when you say the third's your favorite because i have a cheeky suspicion on rewatch it might also be mine and i'm not by any means trying to dismiss uh, dismiss raiders of the lost ark it's an impeccably made film it inspired so many of my fa- i mean we talk about this film being inspired you know, by the early serials, this film went on to inspire so many other mm-hmm. uh, genre pieces, and especially like I mean, Uncharted's like my favorite thing ever. The video game, not the movie. <laughs> to clarify yet yes, again, I but... love Mark Wahlberg too. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you say no? But it's like I owe so much of my childhood to Indiana Jones, and that's not even having seen Indiana Jones at the time that I knew I owed it that because of the way it inspired Uncharted. Yeah, pure and simply so I owe so much to this film and this franchise but I walked away being like this feels more like a George Lucas film than a Spielberg film because it is more of a genre sort of ode to the serials in terms of thematic resonance there's stuff in here and we're definitely going to talk about it in terms of the you know the unknown honor among thieves and all of that but compared to yeah Jaws and Close Encounters and E.T. and all these other films Spielberg has done this very noticeably feels like his least personal film. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a fun film. Yeah. It has no... Like, let's not sit here mm-hmm. and try and derive some thematic messaging out of this film. I, I really don't think there is anything on that front. Mm-hmm. But then I could also argue a lot of Bond films follow a similar... They're just spy films mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Like... Bond has a different adverse, like an adversary that kind of mirrors some of his category. But at the end of the day, I mean, the 007 character was always just a placeholder for an actor. Right. And and then <laughs> the director, only we've only seen with the Daniel Craig Bond, right. so, more characterization being put in there, some more backstory, some more subtext. And, and, it, and it's been real hit or miss. Like mm. there's been some fantastic new Bond films and there's been some not so good ones. But I think at least in this film, as as we're just presented with just Raiders at this point. Right. It's just, like you said, it's just an ode to those serials. It's just a fun film, fun, phonetic, crazy action-adventure film, which, for some reason, for some baffling reason, <laughs> has just not been able to ever be... Like, replicated? Replicated, with, I think, only one instance of it being all, like, in the ballpark, and that would probably be the National Treasure film, which Mm. I don't really have a problem with. I think it's... I actually quite like the National Treasure film. I will say, when you you were leading to that sentence, my thought was Spielberg's Tintin. Yeah. That's as close as it's it's ever going to get to Raiders of Lost Ark. But I haven't seen seen National Treasure. well, National Treasures, I mean, it's the same sort of kooky fun. Right. It really is. Um, it's got a bit more of a... It doesn't have, like... I guess Nicolas Cage is technically the Indiana Jones, mm. but obviously it doesn't have the same sort of... Nicolas Cage isn't cool like Indiana Jones. It's right. like, you want to be Indiana Jones. Like, when I watched this film as an mm. 11-year-old, of course, I'm getting out the leather jacket. I'm then. putting on the hat. <laughs> like, I'm wanting to be an archaeologist. Like... You don't get that with that film. But yeah. You still get the fun sort of mystery adventure, solving the puzzles and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which is cool. But, yeah, I don't understand how this formula has just never been... Like, we watched that Uncharted film. It seems so easy 
Mm. Well, they make it look so easy to be so fun, so interesting, so dynamic. And it just it didn't even come close. Yeah. Didn't even I, get maybe 10% right. I mean, the Uncharted movie is just, for me, it's just a travesty. Like, it just, it was so, they, ha- they had so little they even had to do to make yeah. it great. Just copy the game. <laughs> just copy the game. Just copy its characters and its stories and you're good to go. You're right. In terms of a cultural impact, you know, we're, what an epi, we're in an, the epicenter right now of, of cultural impacts. We have Star Wars a couple of years before. We have Indiana Jones. And then in a few years after this, we have Back to the Future. It's like this yeah. crazy biome of what a time to be alive. Yeah. Oh, it's it's absolutely um, beautiful. I think I think this is a great segue because you said, like, it, if you watch this film and you want to be Indiana Jones, yep. it's so cool. And I think part of that is just the impeccable opening scene yeah. to the film. I mean, you texted me recently you were like how great is how great is the opening scene it it's, sets the tone for the entire film well it sets the tone and and we'll get into like that campy versus like surprisingly violent um push and pull of this film which i think is interesting but even just the way it sets up him i mean we, we introduced to this fearless adventurer we don't see his face for a good chunk of the scene we see all the people around him who were kind of scared of their environments or sort of uh, jumping at you know, picking at their skin because like oh god there's a bug here or like mm. I accidentally touched this branch and I'm scared and there's a little bit of camp to that but there's the guy who tries to double cross him and he has that cool turnaround we see the introduction of the whip which has a million uses throughout this film and I think that's so important with the film and like his look is that the whip is so functional in so many different scenarios because mm. he disarms the gun there but then he uses it to like climb back on cars and swing over uh, ledges and there's all and even even to brush off the tarantulas <laughs> like there's so many uses for it but that scene when he steps out of shadow it feels like a class and classic western yeah it feels like we're being introduced to a clint eastwood character in this moment it's the harmonica moment <laughs> it literally it is and we've got to talk about the score in a minute holy moly but i think the the opening it not only frames him like Spielberg and the way he's framing this character yeah. and the way he's, he's being lit throughout this scene uh, is just so epic. Like you just want to be this and his clothing and his hat and everything. It's all iconic. I think it's especially evident in that silhouette shot later in the film when everyone's digging and the sun's setting yeah. and he, it's just his posture and it's just him cleaning his hat. Like that's all you need to know that's Indiana Jones. Yeah. That's all you need. But then the scene goes further because we see his intellect we see his like suaveness as he's dodging all these booby traps and and very uh, smartly avoiding them, stepping around mm. them. And poor I, Doc Ock. Poor Doc. <laughs> poor Doc Ock. You know that was Alfred Molina's first on-screen credit. I could not believe that. That's his first on-screen credit. That feels weird. That's like it? that's like Johnny being in Nightmare on Elm Street. Like wow, really? Like that's the first role. That's yeah, yeah, crazy. Um, but then you get that flipped when he does the switch. And he's going to do the... I mean, that's just a absolutely phenomenal scene. Just yeah. the build-up attention, the way the music, you know, rises as he's about to do the swap. Just the tension for, oh, he's yeah. about to grab an object. And Spielberg makes it so intense. But then the flip, when all the booby traps do start going off, it's almost like this is a man that's now relying on luck. Yeah. As he's just sprinting out, he's being chased by the boulder and everything's, like, shooting at him. Um, but then another example of seeing all the double crossing, like you said, it sets up the tone in the film perfectly. 
where it's like, G- give me the idol, give me the idol, and then as soon as he does, he's just like, ha, sucker, and then he runs off, and of course he gets himself killed. But how perfect is this opening scene? It's pretty perfect. Oh. It, I think it, 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 and it does, it sets that tone, obviously, you know, by the end of it, it's, he has this inescape like this unexplainable escape of course jock flies in and, yep. <laughs> and the native uh, the native tribes are chasing after him throwing spears and he gets in the and obviously and it it just ends up being this beautiful sort of zorro-esque uh yeah, escape yeah um with the music swelling and and like you said i mean you were gonna we we're gonna talk about the music but this is uh, to me this is william's best score i i reckon there's an argument for that I think it I think is it so is. iconic, but it's it's not even about like the main theme. It's it has a character, it mm. has a voice in this, and there are great uses of motif with Star Wars. Don't get me wrong, and there's these amazing orchestral flurries, but this has moments where it's directly correlating to the plot that's unfolding. It's like when he gets on that first plane to go to the, the Himalayas. Mm. And uh, Holt is it Holt, uh, General Holt, I believe, Major Holt. General Holt. I think it's I think it's Major. Yeah. Yeah, Major. Ronald Lacey. Lacey, sorry, Major Lacey is in on well, that, the. Well, that's the actor's name. Sorry, Ronald Lacey. I think it is Major Holt from Raiders, but I'll double check it. I got Major Arnold Tolt. It's well spelled for T. Tolt. Sorry, it is Tolt. Okay, I thought the T may have been silent. Not Holt. <laughs> Tolt. Forget. <laughs> Um, you know, Holt. and he's there with. From? It's that moment when he's like got the Time magazine. He peers down. Oh yeah, and then <laughs> the Williams score goes in, and that's how you know he's a bad guy. Like it's not even like it's so good, right? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's like oh, that's like he's not good. It's like, funny you compare this moment to Star Wars because when when he's running in that propeller plane, like starts up. There's this, oh I can't remember what sound it is. It's like one of the one of the airships booting up in Star mm-hmm. Wars. Like there's a lot of Star Wars sound effects that are just being spread out throughout the soundtrack, which yeah, which I really do appreciate. <laughs> and the Wilhelm scream, of course. Oh yeah, but that, that's just that's, <laughs> that's just a classic, iconic, iconic. You know, you can't go wrong. But I do. I I think Williams is soundtrack in this film has a character mm-hmm. and a voice, and it's it's a character unto itself. And it's so expressive in its nature. And I think that that comes back to, once again, this is Lucas and Spielberg pulling all the guns in. <laughs> it really they're going, is. They're pulling going in every big, favor in the book. <laughs> they are. They're going for their last, like, perpetually their last stand. If this yeah. flops, we don't see Saving Private Ryan. We don't see, you know, well, we don't see mm. the color purple following this. And right. we don't see. We don't see the evolution of Spielberg in the same way. We probably only see a quarter of those films, maybe. Or if we see those films, they're probably much further down the track. Mm. So you're yeah. saying this this almost feels like there was an urgency to the, the production of this film. There was a need to prove people right, that he right. was capable of finishing from a professional point of view. I think that that pressure... And I think he's gone on to say that. Like, mm. it's the only film he has done a storyboard for every single scene. And yeah, he shot it that, yeah. storyboard to screen. Like, there is no need for... There's, like, no improvisation in the sense of um, every scene is deliberate. There's no mm. de- debating, oh, should we add this scene and that scene? Or like right. you said... You know, there are very famous cutting scenes out because we need to keep moving forward at this breakneck mm. pace. And in the first four weeks, he didn't even see a single shot. He didn't re-watch back anything yeah. in Tunisia when they shot all of the stuff in Egypt, but it was in Tunisia. Right. 
Um, Hollywood so magic. That. So, but it's like all of those <laughs> things, and that's where all of the action's really happening. Yeah, in, in Egypt, you know, you've got all those like those scenes where it breathes a little with like when they're doing the the staff with the the sunlight yes. on on the city, but like. All of the car chases, the big propeller flights, the the escapes through the Cairo. Yeah, yeah. That's all like That's a lot of work. Though, that's a lot of work to not watch back and think, is that okay? If there's there was... something like fundamentally wrong with how it's all I mean like imagine if they I did mean... that with Back to the Future and then they realize like Eric Stoltz like, Oh no, we've just shot the entire film. Yeah. Like Yeah, there's a risk to that of imagine just being if you so shot focused it in time on lapse, it. I mean like <laughs> That's oh, that's four weeks nah. down the drain. You don't get that back. Nah, you gotta, gotta. Someone's better be checking that footage. I tell you, someone should have. Oh god! But uh, so this, <laughs> so the this opening scene. I remember this is one of the very first examples of me seeing, of like film analysis, like deep film analysis. I remember yeah. years and years and years ago, well before I was in my like later high school years studying film, especially uni is someone made a comment about the order of scenes for Indiana Jones. And they talked about the importance of us meeting him in this jungle setting, in this, like, high-caper scenario, high-pressure scenario, and, and seeing that version of Indiana Jones. And then the second scene being, here's him in his, like, suit and nerdy glasses, being a professor to all these horny girls. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love. That's such a great detail, because it's like, no one's there for the archaeology. No one cares. They're all there to first over Harrison Ford. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, that was the first time I ever, like, thought about film on that level of, like, the, the order of scenes really influencing an audience's perspective of the character. Yeah. Of, like, oh, okay. And then that, that it's almost like he's Batman. He's Batman moonlighting as Bruce Wayne, as in he's Indiana Jones moonlight, moonlighting as Professor Jones or Dr. Jones. Yes. And, yeah, I, I always remember that as being, like, the first deep like film uh, analysis that i that i read somewhere and i was like oh wow that's so interesting yeah i do like that we don't stick around with watching the life of professor jones for mm. too long it's it's very i mean almost as soon as that class is dismissed he gets his call to adventure yeah, yeah. like immediately um mainly cuz it's like you said it's not about that duality life no. like he's it never is over all three of the the original films. There's never a a question on oh how does he do this work life balance? Right, yeah. is there? I mean, he never gets the moment where he goes, oh well, I've got to go file for leave while I <laughs> <laughs> before I go on this big adventure. Oh god, gotta check my like because at the end of the day, it's almost like everyone knows that. He's a professor, and he's very much out there. We, and we never see him marking and... papers. It's no, always kind of no. funny. Like it, <laughs> you imagine, there's a scene where he's just there, like, "Oh man, but I've got like eight papers to mark, so I can't go on this adventure." When, yeah, when he first gets on the plane, he's instead of sleeping, he's marking all the students. <laughs> the Nazis are all like, "What is this man doing?" Yeah, like, he's like, "I'm sorry, I've just it's... got to give him a distinction." <laughs> um, I can't fail him, or I get a. And you're uh, you're yeah. right. Like no one's really in the class for learning anything no no um and it's interesting because that's that phonetic pace i'm talking about like spielberg doesn't give indiana jones in that first film any backstory he has no parents he has he is simply just like you said he's indiana jones and then he's like you know his alternative life that his real world life is professor jones but no one wants to 
It's almost like Spielberg's like, no, nah, but you don't really want to learn about Professor Jones, so we're just going to go back to Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, exactly. And I think, like you said, it's part of the phonetic pace, part of the desperation of like, let's just get to the adventure. That's what people are here for. We're excited for it. But it also feeds into this idea that, again, he's like a classic Western character with a very vague backstory. And the closest we get to any of that is the relationship he had with Marion before we see them in this Which is just film. an ex-lover. Really? Well, exactly, yeah. It's it's vague, and you know just a little enough that, to add that context to to there's the no relationship. Child. As it's, there's, there's no, no child. Above. No, there's there's no child. <laughs> there's none at all. <laughs> no child. Child above. But you're at right. All. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that's all we get, and you know that actually goes through the pretty much the until the third one. That's the first time we ever get any familiar or background story. Right. Even in Temple Doom, it just starts in Tokyo. Yeah. Or Shanghai, I think. Sorry. When um, like going back to again, I mentioned the Uncharted game series, where it kind of follows a very similar trajectory to the original indie trilogy, in the sense that you know very little about Nathan Drake until the third game, where you do get sort of a flashback and you learn a bit more about his past and his motivations, and it it feels very much ripped out of the indie trilogy structure. And and we could talk about the third film going maybe a little too far in the start with like ticking every single box. Here's the whip. Here's the hat. Here's his fear of snakes <laughs> all in one scene. It's mm. like, okay, okay. If you're going for it, go for it, I guess. But Go be a It was the holy grail. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. The holy grail of indie films. Yes. As I, I, I honestly feel like, and again, this goes back to me thinking, now I don't want to say this, theme, this film is completely themeless because I did read some stuff about, I mean, the fact that, of course, Spielberg is Jewish, and the fact that the villains in this film are Nazis. I think that's a very deliberate choice. I don't think it's our place to go too deep into that reading of the film. I think that's very interesting, especially mm. the the arc itself being, you know, what the Ten Commandments that were passed down to Jewish people. But I think there's definitely stuff in there to read into. But to talk about the Nazis being the villains, so first off, the film takes place nearly 50 years before it was actually released. It takes place in 19... 19- 36. So all of these films are big period pieces. And even like the cars they're driving are not periods at the time that the films were shot. Do you feel like, because I feel like this is George Lucas, his input of like, they're based on the serials that I was watching around this time or that were shot around this time. Mm. So let's just simply make Indiana Jones from this time as well. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's truth in that. I mean, it. there's no real... Obviously, the villain, mm. the villain being so picking the Nazis, particularly at this point, you know, we're in a like a post like Hayes Code world and all right. this, and I mean, making them such a binary opposition, no one's going to sympathise with them. And the whole point of those serials mm. was that the villain is so clear cut; yes. they are the bad guy, mm. um, and there's nothing redeemable about them. Even um, you know Renee's character; he's, he's not. He's smug. He's entitled. He's yeah. rich. He often a lot of the. I mean, the villains in in Indiana Jones they're just rich people that <laughs> think that because they have money they can that's that's enough for them and. Um, that's the only reason they should own or be a part of that. And, and that stigma comes back to basically the colonial impact on places like Egypt. Mm. I mean, the fact a bunch of white people came along and decided to unearth a bunch of mummies <laughs> because they were rich and they could do that. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think what's interesting is that you're right by making them overtly Nazis. And I've, again, I think it's interesting, you're right, that it takes place in a time where they're very powerful. It's not quite World War II yet, yeah. but we're on our way. 
um, making them overt villains because they're Nazis are very easy to vilify. But then there is that scene between the two of them where he's saying to you know to Indy, Indy like, hey, we're we're pretty similar if you really think it. It doesn't take much for you to turn into who I am. And if you figure, if you take it back to that colonialism argument, they're kind of both like, are they both? Are either one of them that much better than the other? If you take away the Nazism well, iconography... Honestly, I mean, it comes back to that line, it belongs in a museum. It, the mm. ideology of Indiana Jones, or Indy, you know, he's an archaeologist, so his job is to unearth and preserve things. Mm. And his belief is, well, if I get to it first, then I know it's going to end up in a museum, it's going right. to end up in a safe place. Yeah, they, they aren't too dissimilar. The only difference is one of them is going to use it for wealth and power and the other yes. one's going to use it for preservation of culture and identity. And mm. um, that's a very um, e- you know, binary opposition there between the two. And I, I think that that's why they have their moments uh, being sort of more smug with each other. But mm. then that, a lot of Indies antagonists are very similar. They right. often... they. I think in each of the four films that have been released to this point, they have very similar ideologies. They're never mm. more complex than they're rich and they want the thing for power and control. Or yeah. I guess Kate Blanchett's character wanted it for knowledge. Mm. Um, whereas, but uh, you can still argue that's a selfish yeah, knowledge is power need on her end. There you go, because knowledge is power. I mean, I think you're dead on the money there, and I think the reason is you almost can't make the villains more morally grey because then you do start to question where Dr. Jones's allegiance is. I think you're dead on the money with, you know, selfish need for power versus the, you know, the idea of unearthing and, and um, archiving or preserving these things. I, I think you're right. That's definitely where the line is, and it is... I mean, even when he gets the job, he, he literally says, like, I don't care about the money. But it's going to a museum, right? Like that's what when I get it, that's what they're going to do. So you're right, De- definitely from the beginning of the film, it makes it very clear that that's what Indy's goal mm. is. I have a feeling I've seen a little bit of previews and things for the new one. I feel like the new one's going to get really pokey pokey with the whole like, oh well, you're just a white guy stealing things from other countries as well sort of argument. We'll see <laughs> if Dial of Destiny how it's far very, it takes that it's idea. It's such a very difficult thing because. By, and this comes back to that like philosophical debate, mm. and I'm sure if we do watch the film, we'll, we'll have that that conversation. But yeah. it is that conversation where it's like this stuff exists. Like, are we just ne- do we want to just leave it in the dirt? Like, is that what's mm. happening? Do we not want to unearth them? And if we do unearth them, and we're preserving them, is that not just the ethically moral right thing to do? Is that exploitive then yeah. at that point? I guess there's the profitability aspect. If we unearth it, we can sell it. Yeah, well, it's like, well, it's like, okay, if it ends up in a museum, but like, which is it an American museum that it lands in? Do they extradite it to a different country? There's all of those um, nuances that I think the film very smartly kind of avoids. Because I think you're right. At the end of the day, it goes back to we need very clean cut, you know, just like the older serials, we need very clean cut villains. Yeah. And it's not just the Nazi iconography. I think it's also just it's perfectly juxtaposed when they both respectively go to see Marion and to find the, uh, like the medallion. And Indy is very like, he, he literally gets punched in the face and he's still trying to be civil and like, okay, well I'll come back tomorrow. Let's have a, he's, he's trying to go about it in a more diplomatic way in terms of getting her help. But then when the Nazis come in, they immediately resort to violence and kidnapping and thievery. 
So I think, like, in terms of their actions, and then, of course, Indy comes and saves the day, saves her from the Nazis. I mean, that's another example of here's the clean-cut difference between your hero and the bad guys. So I think, I think yep. the film goes as far as it needs to to do that for, for the, what it is, which yeah. is a fun romp action adventure. It's not a huge political commentary on archaeology. With a lot of hand-burning. <laughs> well, that's great, the hand-burning, because that leads into what I think is the other big theme of the film is just, you know, the archaeologists, their thieves are all trying to get these things. The film is stating over and over again that these are treasures that, I mean, the quote is, something man was not meant to disturb. That's the quote that's used, and this idea that all of these, you know, toys and and things that these people are chasing after are inherently dangerous, and whether it is just burning his hand against the the um, medallion, or whether it is at the end what what happens to all the Nazis at the end, I, I guess we can talk about that. <laughs> they turn into candle people. <laughs> Uh, well, it was shot with wax and time lapse. So. Oh, was it really? Yeah. There you go. So they did shoot some time lapse leak. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Still going to be the moment. I reckon. You know, I'll probably, hopefully, go on to make a feature film and make mm. a bunch of other films in my lifetime. But I reckon I'll be there in my rocking chair, still like, <laughs> <I'm just laughs> reflecting on the time lapse movie, reflecting on that moment when I got that phone call that there was a movie <laughs> shot entirely in time lapse. <laughs> Four days of shooting. Oh no, God. Yeah, that's uh, that that will live on. That story. That will. Yeah. That will. I'll forever be known as the first AD <laughs> of a film that was shot in time lapse. Oh um, no. Still got another gig though. There you go. It's fine. So, it worked. It yeah. worked out. But yes, that's. I didn't know that 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 was shot in time lapse. It was. Interesting, yeah, but... with um candle candle like candle molds. Because that is, I mean, that goes back to the sort of t- the push and pull of the campy side of this film, where it's like kind of fun action. Some of it's a little silly. Some of the people's reactions to things are quite silly, but then can at, at times be really violent. And sometimes there's gunshots that are like, like, oh my god, that's a lot of blood effects coming out of that person's head. <laughs> yeah, it has that weird sort of um. Yeah, it doesn't hold back sometimes, or when it cuts to Otto's character getting mm. completely sc- his post-skewering, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Yeah. Poor Alfred Molina. <laughs> I mean, that is shocking, because I feel like that's the first time in the film that you see, like... It's not even... It's not violence, because we're not seeing it in real time, but, like, just, like, the spikes, you know, protruding through his head. Like, it's a... It's a ooh, that's a... That's yeah. a creepy image. I mean, I definitely think the, the, the death at the end of Raiders, of all of the Nazis, mm. and, um... And... Uh, sorry, Belloc yeah. uh, is so vivid and is is probably definitely the most gross, I reckon, mm. out of all of the the Indiana Jones films. Like, I don't think the deaths in, I mean, there's some weird, there's some rough deaths in Temple of Doom, but yeah, not. Uh, I remember the heart being pulled it. out. In yeah, that's of that's, Doom. that's the only thing you really like that I think's a bit violent. Most of them get like they fall to their deaths and stuff. And yeah, and I think Donovan in. Uh, crusade he he just turns to like dust he gets really old and right dust oh that's i do remember that yeah, it's, it's a similar effect though but yeah, i think you're right it's not as like visually grotesque yeah like melting yeah. um but it's kind of fun because it because it, it's shot in that time lapse <laughs> melting effect it kind of almost looks like something yeah out of those 30s the 30s 40s era with what we you know we talked about king kong yeah, a few weeks back with the the claymation effects, and it kind of felt like that a little mm. bit, you know. 
if it was in black and white it would be even more like comical could this yeah. film be shot like could you watch a black and white version of indiana jones it's funny you mention it because i only just found out about this a couple of days ago apparently mr soderbergh himself recut raiders of the lost dark i think in black and white and i think he changed the score so the score is um oh, i forget their names the composers for the social network uh trent Roz, Trent, I can't, I'm completely blanking at the moment, I apologize, but he basically changed the score to something a bit more contemporary and techie, like the social network score, made it black and white, and I think there's no dialogue as well. He basically completely messed with the film and released his own version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think is on Vimeo or somewhere online, which can be watched. So it's funny you mention that, that yeah. there's a black and white version of this film. I would, have, I would have thought it would have been cool to do a black and white version of the film and then m- mess with William's score but make it sound more like it's from the 30s. Like take a right. take some of that high pass off and, right, and make it a bit yeah. boxier so it sounds a little bit more like an old orchestral score and that'd be kind of cool. That would be pretty cool. Like... Because I think, I think what you're suggesting is kind of lean into what the film is. Yeah. And I, and I think what uh, Soderbergh was doing was completely removing all the things that you identify with the film, like the luscious colour and environments and the, the amazing score and dialogue or the fun dialogue, and just make something that is completely unrecognisable to what the original film was. So it's, yeah, absolutely bizarre. I only found out about that a couple of days ago. Mm. So, but I, I think it could have, it would have been interesting to see that version of this film that is, that leans more into, I mean, like Mank where you watch Mank and it's kind of designed to feel like it did come out of the vault of a 1930s cinema. Yeah. So that that is really interesting. We have to talk about the scene. I mean, it could be a highlight scene, I'm not sure, but what we alluded to earlier with the, the rushed schedule, or not even rushed, but you're right, the intense schedule, the fact that people are getting sick all the time, uh, the the fight, the, the choreographed fight between that sword man, the sword man yes, and, and Indy. The scimitar man. Yep, that ends in just a gunshot. <laughs> and yet, it it's makes such me a perfect, laugh every time. But it is kind of perfect because it's not like that the film doesn't have a fisticut that has that massive in front of the air biplane yes. um, fight with the, the gigantic German man. and um, So it does have that massive fight scene and there's countless other punch-up scenes yeah. but so it doesn't feel cheap in the moment because it's it feels like it's actually just mixing up the pace of the film yeah, for, it is. for a moment yeah. and it and it does have that levity aspect you know here and i think it's so funny you know you, you have tom Selleck being considered for this role of mm. of indiana jones and yeah he was great i mean he had a great smile we had that great sort of like burt reynolds charm to him yeah, but yeah. there was something about the like that moment that was han solo coming out and just shooting first <laughs> um that was a very han solo moment actually it right. was amazing though because it's like that's to me that scene i mean i could have easily put it as a highlight scene but yeah and simply because that's why you chose harrison ford because he yeah. really does embody this you know, he even looks at his holster before shooting, like, oh, yeah, I've got this. Like, I can just do... Like, <laughs> That's so, it's such a good moment, yeah. Like, and it's the little subtle, smarky, like, sarcastic, dry, nuanced acting that Ford does really well. Yeah. And that's why, you know, he makes the jokes now. You know, he's this, this old old man who always is like, oh, well, like, 
I hate being known as the person who was just Han Solo or Indiana Jones, but it's like, dude, they that was you. You were it so good so in those roles, yeah. That's, at, that's why people can't like, help. You're but do defined that. by that because of how brilliant you were. You know, there are other films where Harrison Ford's great. I mean, he a year late, year from after this film, he goes on to do Blade Runner, and yeah, well, apparently it was just some rough cuts and dailies of this film that convinced Ridley Scott and producers to cast him in Blade Runner. But it's like, you know, we and we've talked about Blade Runner on the show. I mean, like, that film's elevated by its antagonist. Mm. It's because it is the morally grey antagonist. Yeah. It's, you know, he's great in that film, but it's Rutger Hauer's film. Mm. It just is. Yeah. Um, and I think it's so interesting, you know, and obviously then he goes on to do things like The Witness. Um and there are plenty of other, and fu- the fugitive, which I you know I think that just dropped on binge last week. But it's like I he's just so there. good being that this this icon, of, mm. you know, whether it's a, a sex symbol of the time or or uh, this charismatic anti-hero. Whereas in this, he's he's more just a binary hero. Where mm. he, he is. is I mean, he, he, Han Solo becomes a hero after New Hope. Like, he's not a bad guy. Sure, yeah. There's nothing like, oh, like, he's going to run away or anything, so... But it's still, like, the the personality traits, like, the suaveness, the cockiness. They're yeah. evident in both those roles. But the thing is, I think that's just him in real life. Well, like, exactly, just, yeah. Was, <laughs> you look at the behind the scenes, it's not like he was different behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. He's as dry and sarcastic the whole he's way He's been method through. his whole life. Yeah. <laughs> Being cocky and He's just suave. a little bit of an asshole, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, directors, uh, Stephen and, and George were like, I like a cut of your jib. Like, <laughs> Who was I explaining that to you somewhat? Someone asked me, like, where does that come from, the cut of your jib? And I'm like, I don't know, but an article of clothing is a jib, I suppose. Did you know what rule of thumb is? No, what is that? Um, to tie into Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, it's oh. to measure how far away you are from the, the mushroom. Of cloud. course, like the 50s nuclear warning so video. That's of course. the whole thing with the I did know that. Pit Boy. Yeah. With Pit Boy. You're right. With his thumb up, that's like the logo of him being like that. Yeah. And the fallout is him measuring if you're... Um, if you're if the mushroom cloud exceeds your thumb, you're in the danger zone. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's rule very, of thumb. Very nice. I'm glad one of us retained information like that. Yeah. And I guess it does tie to Indiana Jones because he got into it. Instead of doing that, he got in a fridge. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh God. Yeah. We we definitely have to talk more about the others next mm. week on the show. But I mean that spoiler, Jake. Uh spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Ah, oh, it's okay. What was your highlight scene? Um, oh, there's a couple of good ones. I love. I just want to give a shout out to the shot, pretty close to the end when you have three of our heroes, so Indy, Marin, and uh, Salah, who John Reese Davies. Yes, who are all like crawling up against this rock pasture, and they're sort of looking over, and they see the big group of Nazis that are all like setting up their convoy to mm. ride off, and it reminded me so much of the sh- of a very similar shot at the end of Close Encounters when all the heroes are climbing up over the rock and they look and they see the whole, um, the huge operation for mm-hmm. the, when the spaceship's going to land. Very similar shots. My highlight scene, and we we mentioned this briefly earlier, probably has to be that, that fist fight by the uh, Nazi propeller plane. And it leads into this absolutely wonderful convoy chase where they're jumping from vehicles and he's like getting flipped out and then he climbs back in with the whip and like all this amazing stuff but just the simplicity of 
well, it's not even simplicity, really. When he's fighting the brute, what's so cool about that scene is there's just these little moments of escalation that are all just slowly being introduced. So obviously, you got he's fighting that guy, and then the dude in the cockpit has a gun. So all of a sudden, Indy can't run too far away from that. I guess that little danger zone. Otherwise, he's going to get shot. Mm. And as soon as Marion comes in and, and knocks him out, uh, she, he hits the the control, and all of a sudden, the plane's now rotating. And then the gasoline leaks and it starts spreading everywhere. I love all those little bits of escalation. They just make it such a great, intense scene. And then a great, great climax to that scene. With a lot of blood being spurred out. Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant scene. Great scene. What about yours? What's your highlight scene, Zeke? Um, I'll go with a quieter scene. I'm a big fan of the temple sort of investigation and the sunlight scene. Um, oh, obviously so following good. that amazing sort of the digging silhouette. And we get like a lull and we really get to see a little bit of maybe why i kind of like the third film more i think we get mm. more problem solving puzzle aspect right. this film's definitely more high octane there's a lot always happening mm. indies constantly in a state of perpetual run whereas um and we can obviously we'll go more into detail like you said on the other films but um i liked the puzzle you know the fact that he's looking at symbols on the amulet and mm. then it leads to working out oh i need direct sunlight and watching that scene slowly unfold i always come back to that scene when i watch it because yeah. i'm like that's the stuff that i really like you know you've talked about uncharted a mm. lot over the course of the show not just in the episode yeah um that we covered that lovely film <laughs> lovely um, film and i've brought up national treasure a few times i'm a big fan i love me a puzzle like i love a puzzle it's mm-hmm. it's like i've always said to you off the show now that I have a PS5, the, the, the mm. franchise that I've always wanted to play the most was Uncharted because yeah. that's my kind of game, an adventure but puzzle solver. And it's so, so interesting. And this was one of those moments where I kind of like it. Like I said, these moments where we go from this swashbuckling, mm. traveling adventurer who's able to, you know, uh, solve things with his fists sometimes, but also then with his brain, Yeah, you know. Um, and what I think makes that so special is that even the prior scene much earlier in the film when he's he's initially explaining to the, the two guys who, uh, I guess the government guys that approach him, he's explaining the, the sort of, I was going to call it the law, but it's like, you know, the history of the arc and, and all the things that are going to play later in the film, all the items that are going to be collected, and like the staff of Ra and, and how the light's going to emit through the thing. And like, it's all set up there, but there's a palpable excitement. This is the same thing that Nathan Drake and Uncharted does that the movie completely gets wrong is he is excited about all the nerdy historical things he's talking about. He authentically loves it. Yeah. He loves talking about it and he especially loves finding those things. I think mean, that's what makes that scene so special is just his face, like the pure amazement of like, Oh my God, like look where I am. Look what we just did. This is absolutely incredible. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out as well to the fact that I'm sure people who are, are very familiar with you know the 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 Ark of the Covenant and, and all of this stuff and how it all ties together, I'm sure a lot of it's really nifty, but it's not necessary to follow and track the story. No, you really don't need to know much of anything about. It's just a MacGuffin at the end of the day. Yeah, all these characters are just trying to find this one thing in the desert. That's all you need to know to track the story of the film. Yeah, and I don't think any of the other films really get any more confusing. They, no, they not at basically all. set the law at the start of each film, and then yep. we watch it go basically. Yeah. Um, and they often that's the formula of the Indiana Jones that's the formula of the Uncharted it's yeah. 
it's a means to an end it's just an experience you're along for the ride and that's that's the definition of sort of adventure genre films yeah and that and that being said even though it is very supplementary to like the main feast of these films of these stories you still want to get the history right yeah. because there's going to be a definitely a percentage of people in the audience who really do get a kick out of that stuff so <laughs> Zig's doing the uh, the the point that put, my put glasses the, my glasses put the glasses back on, but like it is important because it just it enriches everything about the story yeah. and the and the lore and everything. So you want to get it right, but I'm glad that it's not necessarily necessary to track the story in any way, shape, or form. Zig, what a what an absolute phenomenal film! Phenomenal. If we had a pantheon or a hall of fame, it would be a first ballad hall of famer. And it will be held by top men. Yes. Be governed Excellent. by top men, Zeke. Uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is currently out on Netflix. It is on Disney Plus. Disney Plus, sorry. Stan, Paramount Plus, and of course, Wide Home Release. Yeah, there you go. Lots and lots of places. Plenty of places to watch it. But speaking of all those plenty of places to watch, Jake, what's new to cinemas? And streaming platforms this week. Well, you mentioned Netflix. There are a few things coming to Netflix in the next week, Zeke. The Outlaws sees a straight-laced bank manager about to marry the love of his life, only to find that his bank is... Ooh, I've misspelled something. His bank is held up, not help up, by the ghost bandits, who he believes could be his future in-laws. I completely screwed up that that reading. But Outlaws, in-laws, it's a play on words... Laws. Laws, exactly. And order. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. <laughs> um, it kind of sounds like Meet the Parents meets Dog Day Afternoon. That's kind of yeah. the vibe that I'm I'm getting from that film. It's like other films like Don't Worry, Darling, Marcel, The Shell with Shoes On, which I'm actually very excited to try and catch that in the next week, uh, and a new documentary about the pop duo band Wham. Wham. And that's the name of the docu as well as Wham. Yeah. Very exciting. Uh, there's not much else coming to streaming in the next week. I still don't have information on what's coming to Binge in July, which is driving me nuts. Come on, so, Binge. So, come on, Binge. Let's, let's get it we together. We pay 16 a month. <laughs> it's getting expensive. Let's, yeah, let's get this God, up. It really is. More episodes of Succession, please. Yes. Or give us a show of equal value. Oh, that could take a while. Yeah, The Idol. <laughs> Apparently, they've um, it's ending quick now. I, I think it was meant to be six episodes, and it now it's going to end on episode five. And I don't think it's getting the season two, so I think that show's bombing hard. So, but how? Why wouldn't they just put all six up? I think I think they just want to get it like done. So I I feel like they're recutting episodes five and six to just be one episode. So that's probably it for him, Euphoria guy. I well, it depends. Like if season three of Euphoria is like locked in, like I don't know what the legality is there. If they like, if they still have to go through with it. Because they've confirmed like that's going to take place like in the future now when everyone's grown up and yada yada. I don't know what's. I don't care. <laughs> Euphoria is so hit or miss. For this me. is what we're talking about. You know, sometimes someone makes something good and then nothing after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, I we, we'll see. Sam Levinson. Well, we shall. Well, see. I'm sorry. Well, I haven't seen too much from Sam Levinson. I've seen Malcolm and Marie, and I can tell you, I don't want to watch another Levinson film if it <laughs> follows that formula. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I can't blame you, so that's fair enough. But, Zeke, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming to cinemas in the next week. So everyone, hold on to your hats. Or, or Zeke, your beanie. Hold on to your beanie. 
I got nothing. I just got my hair. I can hold on to that. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 sees Ethan Hunt and the IMP team track down a terrifying new weapon that threatens all of humanity if it falls into the wrong hands. Again, I wrote hangs into the wrong hangs. Jake, what's... Pick up your game, son. Ethan is forced to consider that nothing can matter more than the mission, not even the lives of those he cares for the most. Are you excited for this sake? Yeah, I'm a little... I've watched the first two Mission Impossibles. Mm. I've watched Fallout and obviously uh, and Ghost Protocol. Right. But I haven't seen Rogue Nation. I don't think. Okay, so is it is it the, gotta, or Ghost I, Protocol's the fourth one, correct? Yeah. And then the newest one was Fallout, so six. Is yeah, I don't true? think I've seen Rogue Nation. I think I've only seen the first two. Didn't I haven't even like seen. It. I haven't it's seen the so new ones. It's so interesting watching those first two because I mm. watched them only this year. Yeah, and they're like binary opposites to these films. Ghost Protocol was the first one I ever watched, mm. um, and I was like, "Wasn't this- the first Mission Possible Sydney Lament? Am I wrong Sydney, about that?" Sydney Lemay. Um, yeah, yeah. I always, I, go, I always add the T in there. It's meant to yes, be silent. It's Jake. France. It's France. Jake. <laughs> I'm a bit of. I think I've said I've said his name multiple times in this episode, and I've said them wrong every time. It is someone episode. that like oh, I think it is him. What's going on, Zeke? I'm getting signed out of letterbox. Oh, you know what? That used to happen to me a lot, which always drove me nuts. I'll look it up for you. Mission Impossible, and letterbox is always very sensitive. No, with... it's De Palma. Oh, it's De Palma. Oh, someone was punching the air for that last sixty seconds of the show. Yeah, you're right. It's a De Palma film. Yeah. Someone we haven't done on the show at all. No, he's been the uh, the Scarface oddity of this all. But yeah, yeah wow. no, that second one's weird because that's John Woo, the second one. That's right, yeah. And, that's, and then Abrams, the third one, correct? Yeah, it's yeah. like the weirdest franchise because it's like... And the second one's set in Australia. Yes, it is. I remember that like, very well. So weird. Seeing like a $20 note that's our $20 note. But it's like set like... Everyone in it is not Australian, so it's so weird. <laughs> it's a very uh, odd film. I, yeah. I, it's I like Bad Genius it. when they when they go to Australia. It's like, oh, this is how they see us. We yeah. just sound Russian. <laughs> yeah. It was very odd, but um, yeah, I, I guess I'm looking forward to it. I, as someone who's seen very few of the Mission Impossible films, and I, and I know the reputation of the later ones have gotten better and better and better. Yeah, having saw Top Gun Maverick in cinemas last year that kind of like completely wow like okay any I'll watch any Tom Cruise action film in cinemas from now on yeah. like that it's completely amazing. reinvigorated yeah. my excitement yeah. for him so. as obnoxious as he is he's really good <laughs> well that's it he's kind of he's kind of done that thing where it's like as much as you want to hate him you just kind of you have to respect it's him it's the separating art from artists yeah and and I I am all for that big you know, Christian Bale level meltdown he had on set that got leaked a couple of years ago with the COVID protocol. I am all for like completely, yep, no, you are dead on the money. You were trying to save the industry. You're giving all these people jobs. You're just trying to keep them within the guidelines of COVID. Yeah. And there are, there's so much money involved in all this stuff. So I, I get the meltdown that he had on the set of this film, which finally comes out this week. So I'm very excited. Yeah. To see it. Also coming out, we've got Warwick Fortin's latest film, The New Boy. We did Sweet Country, I believe, many, many moons we ago. We did. A yeah. great film. So uh, we might catch this one as well. It takes place in the 1940s and sees a nine-year-old Aboriginal orphan in the dead of the night 
arrive at a remote monastery run by a renegade nun played by Kate Blanchett. No, it was recently NADOC week, so... Good time to go and watch this film. Excellent, I love it. And again, I'm I'm butchering my notes, Zeke, because I I have one um, bracket. I don't have the closing bracket. It's just this is going on, Jake. It's just despicable. I've ruined everything. Insidious: The Red Door is a direct sequel to Insidious Chapter Two and the fifth installment in total for the franchise. It sees Josh Lambert drop his son Dalton off to college, where repressed demons of his past suddenly return to haunt them both. Have you seen any of the Insidious films? Nah. No, neither. Not enticed to watch them either. No, that's fair enough. Is that the one with the poster where the guy drags his bloody hand across the wall and it has the demon shape? I think that's Insidious. Yes, sure. I don't actually know. (laughs) Well, I'm glad your default settings are just agree with me. I I would take that, even if I'm totally wrong on that. Couldn't tell you. Uh, Finally, we've got a couple more films. Joyride follows four Asian-American friends as they travel through Asia in search of one of their birth mothers. It's a bit of a coming-of-age story. Sars Ashley Park, Stephanie Hsu, Sherry Cola, and Sabrina Wu. So there you go. Quite a bit of fun. Glad to see Stephanie Hsu back in action. Mm. Um, The Ordinaries, finally, is a German film that simply asks, have you ever felt like a supporting character in your own life? What if you really are one? I thought that was very enticing. I wanted to leave it there. Seems a bit surrealistic, Zeke. Yeah, it also seems a bit, woe is me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh, get didn't we, 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 we talked about woe is me cinema last week. With, yeah. Well, we did talk about woe <laughs> is me Ab- cinema. Abby's um, critiques of Eternal yeah. Sunshine. So there you he go. He even mentioned that when he was praising Maybe. our episode on Eternal no, Sunshine. No, he didn't actually, no. He basically just told me like that I convinced him not to watch Black Mirror. <laughs> Based on last week's episode. That's cool. But that is everything coming to cinemas and streaming in the next week, Zeke. We both have plenty of time to watch stuff for next week's episode because we've got well over a week to actually watch all that stuff. Be an action-packed return. It will be. Very excited, Zeke. But Jake, what are we watching next week on the show? So I think we should continue the trend, Zeke, that we've been been continuing. Next week on the show, we're going to watch James Mangold's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I miss the desert. I miss the sea. And I miss waking up every morning, wondering what wonderful adventure the new day will bring to us. Those days have come and gone. Perhaps, perhaps not. I don't believe in magic. A few times in my life, I've seen things, things I can't explain. And I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe. It's how hard you believe it. Finding himself in a new era and approaching retirement, 
Indy wrestles with fitting into a world that seems to have outgrown him, but as the tentacles of an all-too-familiar evil return in the form of an old rival, Indy must don his hat and pick up his whip once more to make sure an ancient and powerful artifact doesn't fall into the wrong hands. That says a whole lot of nothing, but I like it. Mm. It's basically like, old man's back in the chair. 15 years after the last one. Yeah, wow. How, how long has it been since the third one? Was that like 89? 30, yeah, 30 years. About 30 years, yeah, wow. 34 years. And Connery's been dead for about five. <laughs> Why did I laugh at that? Why is my instinct to laugh at that? I don't know, because he's some pretty dumb things. That's true, that's true. Like, he's not he's not the most innocent man in the world. No. <laughs> I look oh, forward to God. this. I'm mildly... Pedro Pascal's in this too. Oh, okay. He? I, well, think... I know... Um... I feel like he Oh, is. you might be right. He's, he's in everything now. Well, he's uh, Mads Mikkelsen's in this one, so that's very exciting. I'm As the villain. Um, I'm excited. The thing we didn't talk about... And I, I guess we can talk about next because I, I feel like it'd be nice to talk. We talked about indie, like by itself, the original Raiders of the Lost Ark film. I think next week's a good opportunity to talk about the entire franchise. We're he's not in it. He's not in it. No, oh, that's a shame. But he's in a Gladiator Two, I believe. Oh god! I just saw a set photo of him. Oh, Antonio Banderas is in it, so it had to be really. One. Yeah, of course. That's the Uncharted because... tie-in. <laughs> You imagine uh, Dala Destiny, what? and it's just like it go. It dials back to when Nathan Drake's born. They just shoot him. Just <laughs> <laughs> so Tom Holland being like, "No." Oh my god! And what I love is that this is still a period piece. I think this is like 1950s, 60s, maybe now. Is this the hit? Is this going to be indie versus the hippies? Well, I feel like Are it would have to be that? at least the 70s, wouldn't it? Like, uh, how old do you reckon he'd be in it as a professor in the 40s? That's true. I, I, I kind of don't want to look it up. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll find we'll it find next it anyway. week when, when it takes it. place. But yeah, I look, I am so curious. I think I've heard all sorts of things about... I haven't heard too many positive things, but I've also... You have to measure it up to Crystal Skull as well to some level. I think you've got to judge in isolation. And yeah. I think we, we struggle so hard to do it. Mm. We need to be as objective as possible. Like I objectively dislike... Last Jedi. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a way to end the show. Um, I love it. No. Um, but yeah, it's true. Like, you do have to, like, actually try and hold it in isolation. And there are enough things in Crystal Skull to be like, that film by itself is not a very good film. Sure. Um, I guess that's it. Because you, you measure it, like, is it a good film? And then is it a good blank film? Like, as part of its respective franchise. Because I hear it all the time. This is a bad Spider-Man film. Well, th- this is a bad film, but it's a great Spider-Man film. And so it's like, well, come on. It's a Venn diagram here. The, the overlap should be it's quite the, big. That's the fans getting too opinion. The fans, yeah. honestly, I maybe this is the hot take to finish the show. Yeah. I think we give ourselves too much credit in film. Like, oh, absolutely. Universe, like, yeah. we think we're worth more than... We think our opinions got more weight than what it actually does in that sense. Not yeah. in the... Not in like our opinions valuable, but if you start a conversation with, oh, well, this was a poor contribution to the Star Wars universe, right. or, or a Spider-Man universe, or I know more about all of the comic books and all of the this, that, and the other, it's like, cool, you've read more on this very specific niche topic, <laughs> but we're judging the film on its own. Yeah, like I can tell you this right now, Amazing Spider-Man, 
it's a fine film. Mm. It's an okay film. It's got a pretty weak villain mm. in that film. And then the second film's a mess because it just, just tonal whiplash yeah. throughout it. And that's why it's not a very good film. But it's got nothing to do with it being a Spider-Man film. Right, yeah. In terms of like how do they represent Peter Parker adapt- adaptating from comics. But then the comics is a million different adaptations of everything. That's not I and that's it. I, I it's like the Harry Potter films. It's like every person who's read the Harry Potter books gets uh, actually the book system is better. It's like, yeah, cool, but I've got two and a half hours, I gotta fit a whole book in. <laughs> Give me a minute. <laughs> like That's a, I don't want to get too tangential. Um but that last Harry Potter there was uh, that for me, that's when I, it hit me in the very last film of just like there were like three or four things very, 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 very easily could have fit into the running time that just like he doesn't fix his own wand before he snaps the elder one in half. That like, bro. Especially when you what, split what that you, book into two halves. What are you doing half, now? You split well, that into two halves. Exactly. But like the thing, the things I'm talking about are like literally like one line in the book. Yeah. Like he fixes his own wand. That's one shot, dude. That's one shot in a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. So the, anyway, that, like I said, very tangential, but. At least indie, there's no real like source material no, to go. It's just the previous films and how we know them from the previous films. But yeah. like you said, we as fans take things, we we put so much agency in our own thoughts about things, and I think that's why I put a lot of pressure on myself to be as articulate as possible in this yeah. podcast because people are listening. Maybe to us. what the honest thing is, and I reckon this is a forecast prediction, maybe for next week's conversation, but yeah. it it could be because they introduced emotional backstory into the Indiana Jones films. We're rejecting them because we don't like that backstory. Of course. I mean, that's a huge part of all film criticism nowadays is that we just don't like the creative decisions that were made. Yeah. And we're allowed to feel that way, but I think you also need to extend your hand out and, and have, okay, well, why did they decide to do this? Yeah. I think we, that's the thing a lot of fans Because if you ask. look at the trajectory of even the Indiana Jones films, the third film is liked by some people, like a mm. lot of people, but there are people that don't like it because it delves too much into that backstory of Indiana. The start that film starts with an Indiana uh, prologue with his relationship yeah, with his father, yeah. and and the whole film is centered around his relationship with his father. and And some people were like, ah, "I liked it more when we were just going around on these these capers in the first two films." Yeah, um, which is interesting because like my my counter to that is like I think of Uncharted. And for me, I loved all that stuff when, when you know, by the third entry, when they start digging into backstories and, and past and histories. They, and, like, retcon it in the fourth one. Well, the, they, it, it's not... Yeah. Look, it's it's tricky. The whole brother situation, I get it. Because it, they don't, like, retcon the entire history. It's just, like, a weird, blurry spot where it's like, that character probably should have been mentioned at least once yeah. before the fourth one. It doesn't, like, break it or kill the mood for me at all. In fact, well, it but, creates a whole other story, really. A valuable, fun story, having the brother in there, right? Well, what, what it does is, for me, these characters that I, I've fallen in love with in the first two entries, which, like in Indiana Jones, it's simply just their, like, their day-to-day interactions with other people. Just them see, seeing them in their own action and then loving them for that, their personalities and their... I love them for their personalities. But then moving on to learning more about them, is like, does this make them deeper, enriching characters? Yeah. And, like, if it does, that's fantastic. I love that. I love the characters even more. I mean, that's where you kind of have to nail it. And, like I said, I have a feeling I'm actually going to like the third one more than the first by the time I finish my rewatch. So... I mean, that's a good place to end it because we'll find out next week, Zeke. There we go. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. 
I was Z. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. He's ready for that pause. <laughs> Finger on the trigger. He can't, we just can't.